Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. We're live on 89.3 FM WNUR, Evanston, Chicago. Now, look, you want your voice heard, right? 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? Call us live on air, 847-866-9687. And we're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. All right, tonight, composer Julian Grant joins us live via phone. He's part of the team behind the nefarious, immoral, but highly profitable enterprise of Mr. Burke and Mr. Hare, a world premiere chamber opera at Boston Lyric Opera that opens this week. Find out exactly why the residents of Edinburgh in 1828 just weren't dying quickly enough. And later on, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Ruben Dubrovsky, conductor and artistic director of Third Coast Baroque, a Chicago ensemble that reframes early music. But wait, there's more in Monday evening quarterback Oliver and Matt review production of Wagner's Die Valkyrie at Lyric Opera of Chicago and Minotti's The Consul at Chicago Opera Theater. Let's see if my boys can agree to disagree. My boys, of course, Oliver Camacho. I'm a boy now? I think I'm older than you. Oh, just by a couple years. Okay. And my other boy, Matt Cummings. I'm definitely a boy. Yeah, you're, in this room, you're a, you're like an infant. This oh. is the first time I've been in the same room with Oliver for the radio show. So oh, that, that's true, yeah. But you guys have met before, yes. right? Yeah, but to put two tenors in the same room is dangerous, you know. You saw what happened to Toby. He's gone. Well, just the <laughs> smell alone is, is very off-putting. Oh, my gosh, we have a packed show tonight. Super quick sports talk. The Bears were off last week. My Detroit Lions at the Vikings. We're going to keep an eye on that. Question. Was it justice for the Cubs that the Dodgers, who, of course, beat the Cubs to make it to the World Series then? themselves lost to the Astros. Oliver, I know you care. Um, I, I wanted Houston to win because, you know. It's a good story. Go, go Houston. Houston they strong. Win, Houston you know? strong. Yeah. 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 Plus, our, our buddy Arya Nussbaum-Combe is down there singing in Julius Caesar, and we, he needs something to cheer for. That's very know? true. Yeah. Very, very true. All right. Let us talk some opera. Chalk Talk. On Opera Box Score. 
Julian Grant was born in London and has lived in Hong Kong, Beijing, and Tokyo before settling in the USA in 2010. He's written many operas of all shapes and sizes, which have been performed by English National Opera and the Royal Opera House, among others. He is active as a writer, educator, music journalist, and broadcaster. He makes his Boston Lyric Opera debut with Burke and Hare, his 20th opera. Julian Grant, thanks so much for being on our show tonight. Great pleasure to be here. I, I just got back from the dress rehearsal, so I'm slightly out of breath. Okay, and how did the dress rehearsal go? Well, it went well, but, but not too well. So that's always a good sign. You don't want it to go too well, right? Because... No, no. Because then what? No, exactly. You need that extra edge, that little extra push, that little extra bit of adrenaline to, to put in reserve for the first night. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get to the real tough question here. Is this the longest title ever written for an opera? <laughs> well, that would be nice to think so. What about uh, the legend of the invisible city of Kitej and of the maiden Fevronia? And if you add on the composer, Rimsky-Korsakov, he's got five syllables and I've only got one grand. So <laughs> I, I don't know, I didn't count. <laughs> it's great. Now, look, um, how, how did this idea come about? Because when you read the press and the publicity on it, this is one of the most close collaborations I think I've ever read about. I mean, it is a real, it's a love fest. It's a love it. When, it, when you read about yourself, Mark Campbell, hardest working librettist in showbiz, David Schweitzer, your director, your cast, designers, how did this whole thing come about? Why does everyone get along so damn well? It, it, it really does belie the image of opera, doesn't it? No one, no one has had a tantrum and no one has flounced out. Um, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. And it's all completely accidental. Um, Mark, and, uh, Mark and I were a kind of arranged marriage, uh, not by Boston Lyric Opera, but by Music Theatre Group, uh, a Brooklyn company uh, run by Diane Wandersford. And um, the idea was back then uh, to do uh, a setting of the same story. But in fact, there was a film script uh, that's really not very well known by Dylan Thomas, one of the very last things he ever wrote. Uh, and um, of course, with the Dylan Thomas estate, there was a lot of problem getting the rights. And so, so that didn't happen. And I'm very glad it didn't, actually, because uh, once we had... Uh, put that behind us, Mark and I kind of said, well, you know, it's a true story, so um, we can do our own version of it. And uh, that's how it sort of came about. Um, we lost Music Theatre Group along the way. They thought that the piece was a little bit too sort of big for them. Uh, and um, it was a, a complete chapter of accident that we came into Boston Lyric Opera's orbit. The, the story is, is true, correct? Absolutely. It's, it's a true story. If you come from Edinburgh and Scotland, then Burke and Hare is a, is a, a tale that's on everybody's lips. Uh, in fact, our, our esteemed conductor, uh, David Angus, who is, who is very much part of the, the creative team for this opera in this, at this stage, uh, was recently conducting in Edinburgh, and he found, uh, he was wandering around. He didn't go inside, I hasten to add. I don't want to defame him on the radio, but he found the Burke and Hare Strip and Lap Dancing Club. 
For those of us who for those of us who don't know the story, this is Oliver. Hello, um, can you tell us Hello, what Oliver. briefly what the the tale that we should all know if we were Scottish children? Sure, <clears throat> William Burke and William Hare are these two kind of near do wells, and um, their wife and girlfriend uh, have a boarding house, and uh, long term resident Donald uh, dies in his sleep, an old soldier, um, and he dies before his rent is due. Now, at that time, this is 1828 in Edinburgh, um, at that time, uh, this was the center for medical research and um, science. So there were a lot of surgeon schools. There was, in fact, there's a surgeon square in Edinburgh. And one of the most charismatic and um, popular uh, lecturers, he wasn't actually a surgeon, uh, was Dr. Robert Knox. And so they get the idea to take the, cad- the cadaver of this old soldier, Donald, to the surgeon school. And so they can't believe that they get paid 10 quid, 10 pounds, for, uh, for a dead body. And so Edinburgh at that time was divided into sort of two areas, very, very respectable and quiet and very, very poor with a lot of kind of prostitution, inns, drunkenness and dispossessed people. So they kind of, there's a great line in the libretto uh, where, it, where Mark writes, um, we're only putting one foot where the other already is, in the grave. So what they do is they expedite the process and they start to just murder all of these invisible people. So they bump off about 18 people in the course of about 10 months. Uh, let me uh, let me just get back to the important question about that strip club. Just, <laughs> uh, so uh, words are so important to Mark Campbell. Obviously, it's his job to be a librettist. But having met him uh, and having talked to him about his craft, about getting the words to the audience, how do you do your part to make those words heard? Well, um, there's a, I think there's a very... Uh, a, a prosaic skill to it, really. You kind of keep you keep the music out of the way as far as you can when when the singers are singing. Um, we are both really, really alike on this. We we love the idea of opera making as a craft. You know, it's not some great kind of soppy poetic outpouring of the soul. Though, of course, we we do have that as well. Uh, but we are really, really keen on clarity on narrative, uh, on direction, and on structure. And I have to say, it's a dream working with somebody like Mark because he has a sort of second nature in him. Uh, he writes wonderful singable texts. He doesn't write too many words. I mean, I have worked with librettists in the past who think that their job is to kind of vomit up endless adjectives all over the page, uh, like, a, like a sort of deranged, drunken poet, and they think, oh, that'll be beautiful, and you'll set it to music. And I say, yes, that'll be beautiful, I'll set it to music, and it'll last about, you know, nine hours. Um, so he has a wonderful sense of, of, of knowing when to stop and of encapsulating a dramatic situation in a, in a very compact way so that it gives the music uh, space to kind of expand and breathe and subvert the text as well. That's something that opera can do. We're talking to composer Julian Grant on Opera Box Score. He is one of, uh, he's the composer and one of many people of the creative team of a world premiere chamber opera coming to Boston Lyric Opera, The Nefarious, a moral but highly profitable enterprise 
of Mr. Burke and Mr. Hare. What do you think is going to be really attractive about this story and this production to your audience? You mean besides Jesse Blumberg? Besides that and besides <laughs> the strip club thing. Yeah. Is Jesse Blumberg well, shirtless in this opera by any chance? Yes, he is. Oh, yes. my gosh. It, it, I need to get yeah. tickets. We save, that for the, we save that towards the end. In fact, if you go on to barryhunks.com, in fact, we have, I think, four of their, of their um, um, denizens <laughs> in our opera. So, uh, but it's really not that kind of piece. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it is a roller coaster ride, I hope. Um, it is. Uh, somebody came up to me at the end of the dress rehearsal and kind of said, oh, I really, really laughed at that point. And then I felt really quite dirty laughing at it. Uh, and I thought, oh, good, then we've done our job. Because it, it's a really relentlessly grim tale. Um, and uh, we have kind of, not spiced it up, but kind of leavened it with 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 a bit of laughter because it is so sort of it is so grotesque and grim, uh, and the characters are so compelling because they're they're kind of ordinary, you know. They're kind of they they the opera itself is all about profit. It's all about uh, profit and the moral line and what happens when you cross it and how easy it is to cross it. And then once having crossed it, why would you ever want to go back? Uh, and so what, the, the key element of the piece is Dr. Knox, the surgeon who receives uh, the bodies. And, um, that, and that's being sung by, uh, by Bill Burden. By Bill Burden, yeah, yeah which, is a, which is a fabulous um, um, the performance he gives. Um, and he told me he enjoys, uh, he enjoys kind of being somebody who's really, very, really quite sinister. He plays this doctor who is like a sort of flamboyant peacock. And um, when the bodies start arriving kind of rather too conveniently for comfort, you know, they're kind of, <laughs> uh, they're, they're teaching aids after all. He needs them for his surgery school. But um, uh, as, as, as more and more corpses pile up, um, he kind of turns a blind eye. And he knows, he, he, they start to kind of work out full well what is happening. He has this rather spineless assistant, Dr. Ferguson, uh, who acts as a sort of conscience, but he is kind of, he is kind of muzzled as, as, as the bodies pile up too conveniently. And then, of course, what happens is that, um, is that, the, is that Burke and Hare become careless and their wives, you know, the wives are complicit as well, mm-hmm. uh, and they become careless. And, and so, that in a way, they, they, like most serial killers, they kind of provide their own downfall. When you were putting this piece together, and again, when you read the articles on the BLO website or when you read the Broadway uh, World interview that you did, you really get the sense that there were many, many people all working very evenly to put this together. What was one of the easiest things for your team to nail? Like, what was something that you just knew you had right, right from the very beginning? I think... I. I think we got the contrast of the tale. I think that that, that we we had a we had a full set of workshops uh, at um, just after Christmas in New York at Town Hall, uh, sponsored by Opera America, and we did sort of five scenes. And then Boston Lyric Opera did a, did a whole run of the piece with piano, and David Schweitzer, our director, was there, and um, he was fabulously helpful because he. He sort of said, you know, the piece starts really well, and he said, then it gets sort of just very slightly slow, uh, and I think we want to kind of, it sort of needs something. So it, Mark and I actually ended up um, 
rewriting two of the characters uh, completely. Um, what, what, the take that I haven't mentioned that, that our story gives is that, the, is that we select five of the victims, a lot of whom were actually historically documented. We take five of the victims and we kind of reveal the story through them. So they kind of, they um, narrate their own sort of grisly ends. And um, we found that sort of two or three of the, of the characters really, really, we got right first time. And it was the, it was the interception of David Schweitzer who, who kind of made us look again and, and rewrite a chunk of the piece. And then we telescoped some of the narrative at the end far too much, which the workshop was great to sort of sort out. And we were able to put just a little scene in which provides a much more sort of effective denouement. So I think we got the kind of balance of humor and grotesquerie and grimness kind of there from the start. And I think we were then able to kind of fine tune the pacing and the structure. And I think it's now, it seems at the dress rehearsal to be a, a, a nice tight show. It seems to be the shape we want it to be. And was there an audience present for the dress rehearsal? Yes, there was. There were a lot of students from from Boston Conservatory and New England Conservatory and sponsors and, and everything. And um, so that was, that was exciting for us to hear an audience react. And did the laughs come where you wanted them to come? <laughs> well, yes. Okay. Um, they, they were sort of laughing quietly because I think they were kind of listening quite intently because um, it's, a, it's a very kind of... It's, Mark writes a rather quick silver libretto. It's kind of... Uh, there, there are some wonderful kind of lines and arguments. So I think if you laugh too much, you don't want to miss you don't want to miss the punchline. The venue is the Cyclorama at the Boston Center for the Arts. Uh, Caleb Wartenbaker is the designer on the production, the scenic designer. Tell us about this world that's been created and what that unique take is that the team has. Well, it's it's. It's exciting. I mean, there will be no cycle races, which is what the cycle cyclorama originally was was for. Um, <laughs> but its superficial shape sort of reminds you of, of those old um, surgeons' theatres. And in fact, I was visiting up in Boston about a year ago uh, when when uh, this was when Boston Lyric Opera sort of decided to do the piece. I was visiting with my daughter, who was looking at colleges, and so we we actually went into Massachusetts General Hospital and looked at the ether dome which is a, 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 a space where the first etherized operation took place in the 19th century. And, and that's miniature. It's much too small. Uh, but this is like a sort of vastly expanded old surgeon's theater. Uh, and um, the, the idea is that the audience kind of is one side of it, and the cast and the orchestra, who were incorporated very cleverly into the set, are the other side. And the, so or- the space is used yeah. beautifully. The, and the orchestra, it's, it's around a dozen players, is that right? That's right. It's a, it's a, it's a chamber opera. It's yeah. kind of about the size of the Benjamin Britten chamber opera. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Was, uh, is, is Britten a composer that, that uh, you've listened to in the past that's inspired you? Uh, well, I think if you're, if you're brought up in, in, in England as I was, it's impossible to avoid him. Yeah, yeah. I've always, um, I think his technical skill is irreproachable. Um, he's never been my great favorite. I find his, his emotional temperature a little cool for me. Um, I have sort of Slavic, uh, Slavic blood in me, so I was always drawn to... My, my introduction to opera was actually hearing the, the Kremlin bells in Boris Godunov when I was seven, hmm. um, and that kind of really turned me on to opera. 
So even though I was raised in a small cathedral town, Chichester, in the, in the south of England, um, I was kind of, I, I was much more at home kind of listening to the Bolshoi Opera. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, that's right. Of course, the Ch- Chichester Festival Theatre, that's a big that's it, yeah. summertime event, right? It's the sort of yeah. the theatre equivalent of Glyndebourne, I suppose? I guess it probably is, yes. And um, it's, it's the theatre which um, is uh, Stratford, Ontario, is modelled on, too. It's, it's got that right, kind of okay. theatre-in-the-round okay. space. And um, so we have a kind of theatre-in-the-round ourselves at the Cyclorama, which is rather exciting. Julian Grant makes his Boston Lyric Opera debut with Burke and Hare, his 20th opera. It's November 8th through 12th at the Cyclorama at the Boston Center for the Arts. Julian, toy, toy, toy for Wednesday... Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for being on the show tonight. My huge pleasure. My huge pleasure. Thank really, you very much. I really appreciate it. Hey, um, after the break, Oliver and Cummings are going to play Monday evening quarterback on two shows playing in Chicago right now. Uh, I just know that they're going to get into a fist fight. So, look, uh, stick around for Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. It's Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and oh yeah, Matt Cummings. Youngs are gonna enjoy this. <laughs> I think you threw that in just for me. And what is that? Background. Yes, that that's was... a real thing, Oliver. Have you ever heard of no. Yins before? What is it? Do? It's like the Yins is okay. the Pittsburgh version of y'all. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it's very that's real. Awesome. Yeah, you're not a Yinzer though, dude. I'm. I'm not. I've had teachers growing up who were Yinzers. Yeah, you have way too many teeth. <laughs> I can't disagree with that. Uh, hey, we got um, we got some reviews to do, right? All right, so I'm going to just knock out two right away because we're going to talk about Chicago Opera Theater, the console. But I have to do my diligence and just say a couple things about two of the things that I saw. I know you want to limit this, so I'm going to go quick. I was at uh, Opera Atelier a couple weeks ago to see their Major Figaro. It was my first Opera Atelier show. They performed it in the Jeremy Sands uh, translation uh, in English. Sorry, and we're we're in Canada, uh, right? In Toronto, yes. Canada, yes. Yeah. Um, and I have never seen an opera atelier production before, and I was very surprised at um, just the level of staging that's happening there. Uh, the director Marshall and artistic director Mar- Marshall Pinkowski uh, believes in historical gesture. He also is a former dancer, and his wife is the choreographer, and they really care a lot about dance. And so, physicality is extremely important to opera atelier and it's almost as if the entire opera is a ballet everybody's choreographed every beat every gesture is timed and you have to be concentrating so hard to do this and it does sort of limit the individual expression of the singers um the singer who pulled it off amazingly was the Susanna her name is Mireille Asselin 
and her Devyani Non Tardar, which in English is like, come now, don't delay or whatever, uh, got to the point. It was so beautifully sung and it really hit home. And I will say with this style of direction, it was one of the few times that I was watching the fourth act of Marriage of Figaro and felt like, like I understood everything that was happening in the dark. That's a very complicated scene to direct. Yes, that is. That's um, keeping track of who knows what and who is who. And yeah, pretending exactly. Who, and it was yeah. extremely clear. Uh, this opera company does really beautiful productions. Costumes are beautiful. Dancers are beautiful. Even the transitions, you would have appreciated this. They bring the dancers out to move the set, and it looks gorgeous. It's all about transitions, baby. Yes. There were challenges. Uh, I went to go see Douglas Williams uh, as Figaro, and he was beautiful, and he was wearing, like, tight tights. Tight tights oh, as his costume. It wouldn't be an Oliver. Review. No. Gross. And he, so- he sounded great, and he was actually quite funny in the role of Figaro. Oh. But, uh, yeah, the one, the person who really carried the show was a Susanna, I have to say. Meanwhile, really, m- back in Chi-Town. So I, as I was at the opening night of... Uh, Valkyr, uh, especially to hear Christine Gerke as Brunhilde, that was like my main reason for going. But I have to say that Eric Owens really steals the show, and he should. I mean, it mm-hmm. really is his opera to, to lose. Uh, I've seen EO singing the role of Votan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen Valkyr a couple of times. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Wagner, everybody knows this. And I always, I've, I'm just waiting for the Votan to just sound like heck by the time we get to the end of the show. <laughs> and just to it's be like, like five hours long. Yeah. But Eric Owens really saved the best for last. He sang so beautifully in the farewell. His tone quality was gorgeous. And he was never over, overpowered by the orchestra. And uh, you get one or the other. You get somebody singing pretty, you can't hear, or somebody singing loud who sounds like they swallowed a bag of razor blades, you know? Yeah. So congratulations to Eric Owens. Uh, Christine Gerke was authoritative. See uh, Gerks. Yeah. Love her. <laughs> in the role of Brunhilde. Uh, her command of her chest voice was amazing. And she knows how to act like a child, like an impudent child. I think she has some experience with that. <laughs> um, the Zieglinde was a bit controversial. Her name is Elisabeth Strid. She's a Swedish soprano. Mm. Um, I loved her tone quality, but I heard from a lot of people that she couldn't be heard in other parts of the hall. I had really good seats. Where were you sitting? Uh, like row Q or something like okay. that, main floor. Oh, yeah. that's where I'm sitting on Friday, just about. Yay! Oh, dang, you guys have the same. Um, Brandon Jovanovich as Zygmunt. Uh, I'm I'm just going to say that Brandon Jovanovich uh, is reliable. Uh, and he works a lot. He's like the hardest working. Yeah, he works. And right like at this, everywhere. this role actually fits him very well. Uh, and then the Hunding, uh, a guy named Ein Anger, uh, who was actually fantastic, really gorgeous tone, uh, very mean, real jerk. And the staging is the staging. The character. The Yeah, the okay. character of Hunding. Yeah. Um, I just they, didn't want you throwing yeah, shade on had, some guy you never met. That's they all. had, um, me the first time. you know, Zieglinda <laughs> tied to a tree with a chain, and she acted like she was raised by wolves. And the Valk- well, that's awesome. Yeah, and the and like when uh, Zygmunt pulls a sword out of the tree, it's very sexual. It's like explicitly sexual. And um, the Valkyries are like Mad Max road warriors. And uh, Valhalla is like a... Uh, Art Deco era mansion that is suspended above the stage and it works really well. And the Fricka, who I should say her name, Tanya Ariana Baumgartner, uh, is very much like a Claire, uh, what's, what's this House of Cards? Claire Underwood, you know, yeah. character. Very, very elegant, very I was like say stern. Claire Danes. No, no. <laughs> uh, but by the was... way, House of Cards, 
We can't talk about it anymore. Don't don't go there. Uh, My question is, how did this production relate to the first installment? It was the exact same set design, same you know premise. Um, It really so we're seeing the machinery. Absolutely. But we're not seeing the machinery of literally Lyric Opera House, right? It's like the machinery of 19th century stagecraft. Right. Yeah, you could okay. see all like the cranes and stuff like that. And yeah, and it worked. It really worked. Um, I, I have no problem with the staging. I thought they, they kept it moving. Because and... I had some big questions about the staging of yeah. Rheingold. Okay, well, you should see Die Valkyrs at some point, And then we, should, we could talk about it some more. Because you probably have more to say about the staging. I'm always paying attention to the singing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Anyway, now let's get to the meat of the meat and potatoes of of this MEQ. It's Opera Box Score WNUR 89.3 FM. So, I had a date for the console, the opening night of uh Chicago Opera Theater's uh current season. Yeah, fresh-faced young thing. No, I had a date who backed out. <laughs> that was George Cedarquist at the, like the last minute. So I had to like Dude, that was <laughs> not the last minute. I told you like 3 days. <laughs> I told you I wasn't going to be that flaky singer. Okay. And you know who I mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt and I went to to the very warm and uh, poor air circulation. Wait, Cummings was your date? Yeah, I you've been replaced, George. <laughs> I'm 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 in it to win it now. All right. Oh, gotta... we don't we have a clip. I don't know if we're gonna be able to get. Why don't you while we gather our thoughts? Why don't you play a little bit of uh, the the clip? It's um, Elizabeth Strid singing uh, Zieglinda uh, from a different production. But I just want you all to hear her voice. Great, you know, Ziglinda yeah, voice, you know. That's a solid instrument. Yeah, beautiful, in tune, silvery, metally. Okay, so the console. I will let Matt start a little bit here. Uh, are you ready to talk? Uh, about yeah. It? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, I'll just I'll just preface this by saying that this was <laughs> um, the current general director of Chicago Opera Theater and the new music director. Lydia Yankovskaya uh, came out on stage before the curtain went up. Doug Clayton, general director. Right. Uh, to say, hey, everybody, this is Lydia. Say hello. And this is the last Andreas Mitisek show. And it was almost as if he was like reassuring the audience. I promise <laughs> you, it's the last one you're going to have to see. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, go ahead, Matt. So a lot of it worked for me and a lot of it did not. The first thing that I will say absolutely worked for me was Patricia Reset. She was on fire. I agree. And Patricia Reset, among... Among the singing community, among the critical community, has a reputation for being a singing actress first and foremost. Like she is absolutely committed to the drama. She is willing to let her voice go a little bit wonky if it really means delivering the goods, but also she's got a great solid instrument and nice. can really sing the crap out of whatever she chooses to sing. And in big theaters, I've always felt like I kind of just had to take that for granted. 
and uh, I saw her in Madame Butterfly when she did it maybe four years ago down at the Lyric, and it was a performance I really enjoyed, but you can only get so much of that in a 4,000-seat house. In a 700-seat theater like the Studebaker, you're right there, and every single moment she was in it. Her choices were so subtle. They were so varied. She really built the character uh, from beginning to end, and you could see... Uh, an evolution. There was an arc to the story, and she added a lot of the drama that that dramatic thrust that wasn't necessarily in uh, the opera from Minotti's writing it. She's singing Magda Sorel. It's the not obviously not the title character. Uh, why is this role so difficult? When you look at twentieth century repertoire in English, this has got to be one of the true. Bear roles. It is a comprehensive role. It's almost like the American. I don't want to say Norma. It's not as difficult as Norma, but it. You know, it's a. She's on stage basically the entire opera, and she has to go through the gamut of emotions from you know fear of losing her husband to suffering the death of a child. She has the papers aria at the end of Act Two, and there's still another third of the show. Yeah, and then I mean, I'm spoiler alert: a suicide scene. So it's it's definitely has the arc of like one of these you know tragic heroines uh, from like a bel canto opera, and I have to completely agree with Matt about Patricia's Patricia Rossette's performance. Uh, it elevated this production. Um, this I feel like this production didn't deserve her. It was she was so good, and she made the Studebaker feel so like a great first of all a great place to be that night to hear her the way she sounded but also like this place doesn't is not worth the quality of performance i had goosebumps for the end of the papers aria she just she absolutely turned turned the dial up to 11 and let it rip yeah and vocally i have always i i like the instrument i think it's interesting i think that she uses it even even better than that. Yeah, and in a space that small, like you said, you can hear all the nuance. And when she pulls the trigger and decides to really, you know, give bloom to a note or thrust on something, it's dramatic. You hear the technique working, and like your ears are filled with the sound. So it's, P to the R representing. Yeah, in the it's console. really exciting. So other people are in the show, believe it or not. Well, let's get uh, on to those other people. I've, I've directed the show, so I yeah. want to ask you about what I think is one of the critical roles in this show, which is the secretary. Audrey Babcock. She was awesome. Uh, she, I mean, she was eclipsed by, you know, the amazing performance of Patricia Rossette. But sure. in any other performance, I probably would have been paying attention to Audrey Babcock. Yeah. She, solid tone, great acting. She looked great in, like, this really, you know, business suit-like attire. Oh, she had this uh, great sourpuss face that she would wear yeah. all the time while she's giving those tart answers. And you just believe, you, I mean, who has not been to the DMV or the post office and met that exact? Yeah, one? no, she was fantastic. She wasn't funny, though, I have to say. Like, there was a production here in the Chicago area not too long ago where there managed to be a little bit of humor about what the secretary was doing and, like, the mannerisms. But this staging had the secretary... Uh, on a desk that was elevated above the stage, like, I don't know, maybe like 20 feet or something something like that. that. Yeah. And so we really couldn't see her expressions that much. Uh, It was, she was really distant from the rest of the... So uh, that design choice made this as much like an emotional space as it was like a physical real space. It it really drove home the theme of the overwhelming bureaucracy of it all because whenever she would toss the papers to someone... It would, you could see it fall yeah, for they would, five <laughs> seconds before they thunked onto the floor of the theater. That's kind of brilliant. Yeah, that was a nice yeah. touch. In a way, you know? But that was the only part of the set that I actually enjoyed because okay. the home of uh, Magda and John yeah. was a little bit 
it was kind of confusing. Yeah. It the it had incomplete walls and it, and things jutting out at weird angles, but it was very it was it was confused. You couldn't really tell what door was supposed to be which. Yeah, and windows look like doors. The window. And... I thought the window was supposed to be a cabinet until yeah. there was a broken pane of glass. Yeah, <laughs> and then they replaced the pane of glass with something that was way too small. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also the um. Whatchamacallit, the, you could see all of the people who moved the sets, what do you call it, the stagehands. Yeah. Um, and they were always waiting in the wings. And they never closed the curtain between scenes, so we had to watch these frumpy stagehands come out and like push the sets. And there is enough music. Minotti provided enough music for there to be like proper scene changes. And for whatever reason, they kept the curtain up. And I felt like there, I, there's no reason why I need to be watching this. this it didn't feel like a choice to it, you. And, yeah. and it didn't really add anything yeah. to the... Plus, because they put the house lights down, so it's like we're basically just watching people sort of in the dark, you know? And I have to say one more thing about the production. The production is very stylized, and it's very Chicago Opera Theater. It has, like, garish lighting. It has good lighting, but, like, it's very stark, you know, shadows and this type of stuff. And that worked uh, really well for the office where they had the big, they had a big angular uh, fluorescent lights come down. Right. And you got that feeling. Right. But- but for the home, it didn't make that much sense. But what what really struck me is that the Studebaker Theater has a beautiful proscenium and has lots of like, you know, whatever this era of when this was built in the 20s, it has like touches of that type of theater, like velvet and like, you know, molding and stuff like that. And to have that space and then have this very modern, stark, mm. austere thing on stage, it didn't, it just never felt right, you know, to be seeing that particular production in this venue. This piece is problematic because... Yes. Yeah, because it's terrible. <laughs> well, it's it's not that it's terrible. The, the problem with the piece is that it is from a different era. Cummings mm. and I, we were talking about this before the show, is that the way it's built and constructed is theatrical storytelling has moved on from the early 40s when this was written. It's a little too pat, and it has these two locations, and you go back and forth between the two. Clearly, the transition's were, in your opinion, Oliver, problematic in this production. Uh, you know, look, I'm not the biggest fan of Medisek's work. I, I get hot and cold on him, but I feel him on this. This is a tough show to pull off, and it's because of the way that it's built. Matt? The, yeah, I, and I think that a lot of that problem is that Minotti does not really do you any favors with the libretto. It is, it's old-fashioned. People don't really talk like that. Thank you. And so it and and a lot of times it's stilted in terms of uh the way the english kind of feels on your tongue and hits my and it would hit my ear and it wouldn't sound quite right and especially since they have supertitles above the stage and you can read along and you that if if it doesn't sound right it definitely doesn't look right yeah. plus it's built in three acts no one does three acts anymore where do you put the intermission that's a tricky thing. yeah but the intermission came like 2 hours after it started and then the last act was like 30 minutes it's not yeah. it's i i feel him it's okay. not fair so we have to uh, listen to the clip now this isn't the cot production this is the long beach production it's like a preview video and unfortunately this is the paper scene um Andres Mitasek and Patricia Vercet, like kind of talk in the middle of it, in the middle of the music. So we're going to hear that. But I just want to give one shout out to the mother, played by Victoria Livingood. Uh, she is sort of a veteran mezzo-soprano now who has become a contralto. She would be perfect in the role of like Clytemnestra or uh, in a drag role. I mean, like her voice is so low. She sounds like a tenor. They were insane. Uh, yeah. Her low notes. But uh, are you queuing up the clip, George? Okay. 
Um, yeah, she has just a really, really powerful voice, and it's almost like gender confusing how powerful her voice is in the chess register. And I thought that she was very effective. And on stage with Patricia Rossette, she had no problem being next to talent that level. I think the highest point for this role, certainly for me and portraying this role, is the big Shana aria, To This We've Come. This is the moment where she finally breaks Magda as the character and just spills it all out. It's a real interesting... We're going to fade it out there just to make sure we can get the rest of this show in. Hey, uh, two shows that we want you, our audience, to go see. The Valkyrie at Lyric Opera of Chicago closes November 30. The show, The Console, at Chicago Opera Theater is also on November 10th and 12th. Hey, look, let us know what you think when you see those shows. You can just find us on Facebook. Opera Box Score is all you need to search for. All right, after the break, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Third Coast Baroque conductor and artistic director Ruben Dubrovsky. It's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number, 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. Welcome back to Opera Box Score with George, Oliver, and Matt. right now to a recording uh, prepared or conducted by Ruben Dabrowski. Uh, this is the Bach Consort Wien, uh, a group that I believe he founded and directs uh, out of Germany. Wien, Wien is Vienna. Okay, Austria. <laughs> uh, this is a recording. Austria. This is called Vidala, Argentina and the Roots of European Baroque. Uh, appropriate since uh, Ruben Dabrowski is, uh, was born in Argentina. Uh, he has a major career conducting opera in Europe, but he uh, co-founded uh, the 
Third Coast Baroque here in Chicago. And we're going to talk a lot about Third Coast Baroque in this interview. To welcome Maestro Ruben Dubrovsky here to Northwestern University, where we're recording this interview for Opera Box Score. You just got off of a plane from Frankfurt. I saw your Facebook status, and you were coming from Darmstadt, or from? Actually, yes. We had a, yesterday yeah. the second performance of our Figaro okay. production there, uh-huh. and yes, it is it, great to be here. So, you're in Chicago now because you are about to uh, prepare, or you are preparing a concert, the first of the season for Third Coast Baroque. It's called The Class of 85. Uh, this is Handel, um, Scarlatti, and, and Bach. So, I guess all of these guys are on this concert. Uh, I know that you're doing the Scarlatti um, Stabat Mater for 10 Voices, which I think is an amazing piece. I'm so excited to hear this. What else is on the program? We are doing... One big vocal piece mm-hmm. by uh, one of by, by each composer. Mm-hmm. So we do uh, by Bach this uh, great um, double choir motet, Zinget and Ham. Okay. And we, do, we are doing a um, Handel anthem, mm-hmm. uh, Aspans the Heart. Okay. Um, which is also, like the others, uh, a setting for singers and basso continuo. Okay. So, same uh, forces, same instrumentations, but completely different way of treating them, and um, completely different sound, but also, like, different spirit. And I I think it's so beautiful to see um, these composers born the same year and also very close somehow uh, one to each other in the in the goals they have but to see when they write church music for an equal setting mm-hmm. how different that that right. is yeah so how is it i mean i know that if they have people have to come to the concert to to hear what you have to say about this but uh what can you say ties these composers together if they weren't born in the same year you know what would you say is the through line between these three i think um all three of them are great carriers of the of the heritage of Western music until there. They were all, in a way, traditionalist, mm-hmm. and all of them also revolutionary. And you cannot say that of many composers, because many people are one or the other. Um, but really, um, if we start with uh, Domenico Scarlatti, his father was, of course, an amazing uh, composer, great opera composer. Uh, Domenico wrote also many operas which uh, are almost never being heard. Mm-hmm. But when it was about writing church music, he wrote, like trying to show his father that he could also do it, and he uh, chose this really complex setting of ten voices and continuo. And when you write for ten voices, you could assume, okay, you have some solo here and there, yeah. and a lot, a lot of feeling voices, yeah. and there is really so much complexity mm-hmm. in this um, polyphony. Um, really, like very few examples um, of that. And is a composer doing this in a method inspiring really generations? Um, 
way, uh, a, a long way after him, if I think of uh, Richard Strauss' Metamorphosen, one mm -hmm. of his uh, very last work for strings, he's treating the string orchestra very much like... Ten voices. The yeah. Ten voices, yeah. like, yes. And that is or, uh, for 20-something instruments, yeah. but still <laughs> the way of, of thinking... Do you think Strauss listened to Scarlatti? Well, uh, definitely into that, very much that way of writing. Mm -hmm. And um, some composers, we can only assume, did they know or did they not know this particular piece? Mm -hmm. But for me, with a little bit of perspective, mm -hmm. absolutely, one comes really from the other. Yeah. Then, when we go to Bach, the, the big, biggest difference of mm -hmm. Scarlatti, who is treating singers like singers, yeah. Bach is treating singers like instruments right and that is so beautiful and so hard to do at yeah. the same time so you have in case of Bach this double quartet and if you would to sing them here only with instruments would be a great piece yeah yeah so uh, I think the um, the particular way uh, Bach is writing putting these uh, singers to the limit of what you can do vocally, the clarity you need and the speed you need in the coloratura, mm -hmm. I think is, is extraordinary and so typical for him. It is the most extreme of his motets, motets. Because he really uses all the possible combinations as he would do a Brandenburg concerto for voices. Yeah. And then we have Handel mm -hmm. and that's a very interesting piece because in a very short format, he's showing how his big-scale oratorios, like the Messiah, mm -hmm. work. You have, it's like a mini Messiah. Yeah. You have the, the choral parts, you have arias, you have recitatives, mm -hmm. you have a duet. And uh, the way of treating the voices is so typical, Handel, that it has every possible variant. In Scarlatti and in Bach, we don't have solo arias, but we do have them in the Handel piece. So uh, it is so obvious that for him, a large-scale piece needs the contrast between the movement from the biggest to the smallest uh, possible combination. Why, why this type of music? In Third Coast Baroque, I think our goal um, is really to bring to, to show to the people mm -hmm. this incredible different settings, this, this variety of, of possibilities which Baroque music has. In this program, we have 10 singers mm -hmm. and only three instrumentalists. In our next program, we have a full orchestra and only one singer, <laughs> because Baroque music is like that. And I think it is so great to have uh, this ensemble where we can do everything which Baroque music offers and um, we can uh, doing chamber music for, for singers and a continuo or chamber music with instruments and uh, singers on the same level or an orchestra serving a solo singer it gives us so many um, insights on why is this music really like the mother of all later modern uh, western music so do you have any projects that uh, you wish you could put together, like, you know, that this is your dream to, whatever, to stage a Kabbali opera, or to do the three Monteverdi operas, or something like this? Well, I am lucky enough that um, life is really giving me opportunities 
to do like everything you have mentioned, yeah. which are really like Monteverdi operas or the, the Mozart operas um, or Bach cantatas or passions. Yeah. Um, they are so great um, uh, pieces of music. They are a dream and they are happening in my life. But I, my personal dream is not so much about what I do, it's about how we work, the conditions of work we get so that we can really be musicians on stage, even if we perform an opera, mm -hmm. to have enough space for musicality, for people to listen to each other in order to bring the music to the public, which is, of course, when you do opera, uh, something which is not easy. There is the stage, mm -hmm. you want to play theater, you have yeah. to play theater, and finding a great balance with it, uh, between those two forces is something which is, for me, really a dream. Sometimes, sometimes I come closer, sometimes I am very far away, and yeah. you are just waving your hands, yeah. trying uh, to get your singers in time, because they have to be far too far away. Uh, have you had any... I mean, I want to continue with this question, but since you brought it up, have you had any experiences working in German opera companies or German opera houses where the stage director was really taking over the whole project? Of course. Um, over the whole project, I won't say, but every time we have, every time we work, we have um, potential for conflicts. Mm -hmm. Like in the figure we are doing now, there is this incredible duet almost at the end of the second act where Susanna and Cherubino are uh, running yeah. around trying yeah. to find an exit and then yeah. Cherubino jumps out of the window. Yeah. And musically, if both singers come um, just to the front of the stage and they try to sing it with the orchestra, it is already hard. Yeah. Put them far away, it gets very hard. Yeah. Let them run around the stage yeah. and having difficulty to breathe yeah. and, and being in time for yeah. aprite first aprite, yeah. it gets really difficult. So it's always about balancing this. Yeah. And of course, opera is a compromise. It needs a compromise and it needs a um, very good attitude from my side and from the stage director's side to say, okay, how can we do this that it works in every sense? But this conflict is every time you work, of course. Yeah. Do you find that the German directors that you've worked with, I shouldn't let you throw somebody under the bus, but have you worked with stage directors maybe that didn't know the score and didn't know the music? They knew the words because that's what they studied, but they weren't prepared to you know, really allow the music to... to suggest the staging, you know, where they fight for the staging, you know? Um, I think yes, but not so much but, uh, because they didn't know the music. They know the, the music quite well, but in the moment they stage, sometimes they don't trust the music. Yeah. Yes? I had a, a Rossini opera mm -hmm. I have done where you could really feel that the stage director wasn't trusting the music and actually didn't trust the libretto because some things you find they are silly or yeah. you don't do this anymore. And if you don't trust the composer and mm -hmm. the poet who wrote this, then you really have a problem. Mm -hmm. Yes, And I think if you don't like a work, you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people try to bend this in yeah. a... In a um, 
direction where they can live with, and that's mostly a bad idea. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you have to be completely literal. You can really go crazy today with a, a, a staging, but go crazy because you love a piece so much yeah. that you decide to, to, yes, to put it in a, an extreme way, but not because you distrust. Yeah, you're trying to change it to fit your idea of what it can be. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So you were saying a little bit earlier about uh, creating conditions for you know, music to happen. Are you talking about the audience being informed? Are you talking about the salaries of the musicians? Are you talking about a beautiful space? I know beautiful spaces are a concern of yours, <laughs> you know, acoustics and whatnot. So what, what are you exactly getting at there with that idea? First of all, let's start with the work we do uh, with the musicians, with the singers, that everybody knows not only his part, but mm. that everybody gets enough rehearsing time and information during that process that you really can feel that everybody is the interpreter of the whole piece and it not only the conductor. I think that's crucial. Of course, having artists paid well is very important because that makes possible that they have the time to prepare and they are not just running from one gig to the next one in mm. order uh, to pay the, yeah. the rent. That's, of course, something very important. And uh, this is why fundraising uh, is so crucial, uh, especially here in the United States for artistic organizations. In Europe, the system is very different. The um, promoters who are also uh, running these concert halls, they are hiring usually artists to come and perform. And those promoters are getting public funds or doing their, their, their funds raising. Um, I am very surprised still of how this year works. It is uh, for me really um, a completely new experience. And I admire very much every artist and every artist organization here in the United States being able to perform uh, a season and yes this is how it works and uh, yeah and uh, then after you perform they push you into the with the donors now talk to the donors and, and inspire them you know um, absolutely which is something um which uh, luckily it is so natural here yeah. that um you don't uh, need to feel shy as a musician because yeah. Um, is um, really private people and donors supporting arts right. in, in a way which is beautiful. It is just a completely different way of thinking. And also what is different is the role of the universities, like we are here, yeah. how important they are for the cultures happening. It's mm -hmm. very different than in Europe. In Europe, universities are just, um, just. I mean, it's very important building uh, the, the new musicians, the new artists, but the arts life happens mostly outside of the universities. Here you have some of the most beautiful concert halls inside of the universities. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very big difference. And um, then you mentioned something which for me is very important and very beautiful, and this is the informed uh, public, the informed mm -hmm. audience. And um, yes, 
when I am in a museum, I try always, if there is a group of, uh, of people around, somebody telling yeah, them... the tour guide. Yeah, and the, the tour guide. Yeah. And telling them about the pieces of the museum. I always go and try to listen. And if it's in any of the languages, I cannot, even if I don't speak the language, but you still get something yeah. there. I think it's very important to understand art, to enjoy art, to know a little bit more about what you are listening, about the context, about the history, about the roots. And uh, yes, I care very much about that. And this is why I enjoy also in our concerts to speak to the public, to give a bit of context of what to listen to mm -hmm. so that the listening experience is a richer one, is one where you, you will remember more, which will give you more emotions. And yes, it makes all of us, uh, I think, uh, happier in contact with these uh, pieces of art. And I think that uh, there is no masterpiece mm -hmm. that is so outstanding that it doesn't need a context mm -hmm. in order to be understood. If you take Matthew Passion, wow, what a, what a masterpiece, or B minor mass. Yeah. Still, do you know more about it? You enjoy it more. Yeah. And... If you say a Mahler symphony or um, pieces where it's not only the piece itself speaking, but there are so many references to the tradition and to the history of music and to the society and to the moment they were playing, that, yes, the more you can know about the, the score, but about the, the society where it happened, um, yes, more you will enjoy. Um, I think it is so important for um, being able to enjoy something, yeah. to to get an introduction. Okay, well, that's a good place to end because I want people to hear uh, Third Coast Baroque. I, I'm urging everybody to go because, as you can see, Masha Dabrowski is very passionate and very entertaining, too. I Actually, I love just you i love your presence on stage and you're a pretty good musician you know uh, but uh, it's really entertaining to see what you have to say and then to see it translated into the, the performance so anyway thank you so much for being on the show i hope you have a restful evening so that you can get started on this crazy week of yours thank you so much beautiful to be here good call bad call on opera box score Oh my goodness, what a great episode yeah. that was. What a great interview that was. Thanks. <laughs> and that was just cool that he was in Darmstadt. That's where I had been in Germany. Drink! <laughs> um, hey, that's all we got uh, time for. Really super quick callback call, Matt Cummings. Yeah, sure thing. Our host, Northwestern Opera Theater, is, pre is presenting their first show of the year, Moments of Mortality, a triple bill of three very rare operas on November 10th, 12th, 17th and 19th. Tickets are available at pickstager.org. It's the first show of their new opera director, so I encourage everyone to go out and see it. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. 
Be sure to comment and share our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And of course, you can leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For co-host Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera if you're waiting in line to vote somewhere on Election Day tomorrow. We're back next Monday at 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, news stories, hot takes. Join us. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.